Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Isabella Kelly. Isabella is the founder and president of Kingdom of Mind, a live experience production company. Isabella founded the company in partnership with entertainment giant Live Nation as a first round recipient of their Women Nation Fund, which itself is an early stage fund investing in female founded live music businesses. Isabella's story is rooted in the belief of the transformative power of the live entertainment experience. As the COVID pandemic has pushed her to embrace what she calls the power of the pivot, she's been hard at work imagining new events and has launched a podcast to explore her ideas and her philosophies. Please enjoy our conversation. So do you get up to the Pacific Northwest at all? Yes, I do. When when it's a little easier to, to move about. Um, my mom is based in Seattle and we were rolling out our operations actually for that market before all of this really hit and had been in and out of Portland a good amount over the last year. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm, I'm just South of Seattle in a little town called Normandy park, which is, I guess, sort of halfway between Seattle and Tacoma, if that means anything to you. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and if not, yeah. that's okay too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was actually I was born in Seattle, so first oh, okay. years there. Yeah, wow. uh, and my family is still based out there, so it is wow. one home. <laughs> yeah. So in your time in Seattle, I would think um, you saw it change a lot in terms of being sort of a smaller, quieter city to being a a bustling hub that it is now. Yeah. So I was actually, I was there until I was eight. So for the first few years, and you're right, I think I've been more cognizant of it since I've gotten older and have been in and out of the city and, you know, really analyzed the, really analyzed, you know, just how much technology and Amazon and, you know, Microsoft has really moved in and, um, change the culture a little bit, but it will always be a a home. I grew up most of the time in London. So that's where I was for the formative years that I can really remember. Um, Yeah. So I think, you know, between seeing Seattle transform, that has been more of an experience from the last, uh, the last decade or so but with the perspective of kind of being in and out rather than being able to see those changes in, in real time as a resident. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about going from Seattle, London. How did that come about? It was initially for, for a year. My family decided to, to have an experience out of the country for a, a year. My brother and I went to an international school in London. Um, it's called the American School in London, but mm-hmm. it is uh, similar in that it is a program that echoes an American system, but taught abroad. And my family really enjoyed the experience and got a lot out of being outside the States. I think 
for me, you know, it was less a, a choice but that I, I made, <laughs> but it's something I'm extremely grateful to have been able to have experienced at a young age. I think that growing up out there really helped me to understand a lot more than what I would have seen if I'd been based in Seattle. Um, just, it's really a melting pot, London. You just ride, at least when you can ride the tube, um, yeah. when you see the mixture of, of peoples in that, you know, just going to and from, it's really tends to be representative of just, you know, how many different perspectives are all in one city. And, um, and I think that was really good for me to, to be exposed to that and uh, just to be, you know, pulled out of the fish tank a little bit and seen somewhere that was, was different. And um, I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to, to have that perspective. Yeah. And at the American school, were you primarily, um, were you in school with expats or were they, you know, what was the student body like? It was a mixture, you know, some expats, there's really, most families had, had their own story for being there. And mm -hmm. sometimes the, the students weren't American at all, but, you know, families may have wanted them to have that kind of education or may have been looking towards an American schooling system for, for college or university. And it was a mixture. Some expats, like you said, some military, some, you know, just primarily uh, parents that have taken on positions uh, outside the country temporarily or for, for longer amounts of time. The people that I connected most of at that time weren't necessarily at the school. So, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was lucky to, to grow up playing sports and to have met people that weren't necessarily Americans living in London, but, you know, actual Londoners or from different countries that had ended up there. It presented an opportunity to, to meet people and to, I guess, get, um, get a perspective as to what else is is out there beyond the U.S. and to, to think in those terms. Yeah. And were you coming back and forth a bit during those years or was your family pretty much like hunkered down in London? To see family occasionally, we'd come back. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, how I got to know Seattle is, you know, mostly visits home for the holidays or coming back to see family. But we were, we were based out there. Uh, for me, it was nine years before wow. coming to coming back to the US for university. And that's what brought me out to California. Wow. So before we jump back down to California, tell me a little bit about you mentioned you were sort of immersed in the in sports and was music a part of your life at that point? Yes, it very much was. And that was always something that um scene shows especially was one thing I really valued in living in a big metropolitan city. And I was really lucky to have, my mom was very supportive of that interest. I remember her dropping me off at a venue, you know, pretty early, I think maybe even 13. And I wasn't afraid to go alone. And I really just enjoyed, if there was someone I wanted to see, uh, I, w I just enjoyed 
the experience. It didn't necessarily have to be a social event. It didn't have to be, you know, with a bunch of people I knew. I, and I've always, I think I felt this and this is what has helped direct my career is I just felt that kind of moment of stillness in the shows. And that really, I think it became clear that this was something I, you know, enjoyed and like was a moment that felt different to the rest of life, you know, whether that was at that age, you don't know very much of life yet, but at that age, it was school and, and like I said, sports or family life. Um, but those shows were, were kind of like a moment of meditation away from it all. And, um, yeah, and like I was lucky to have my mom being so supportive and, you know, not looking at the music as like a vice or like a place for trouble. But I think she really understood me in that like it was a, a place that like I could really connect with myself. And I think that made it clear to her that it was something she wanted to encourage or at least support me and you know in, in discovering a little bit yeah was uh was music important in your household or did either of your parents have a have a you know have any did they did they bring the exposure to music or was that something you sort of discovered on your own um my brother really is the musician in our family oh, wow. and yeah he is a bassist and he's currently studying music in university and um, he's at U Miami. And I think that, I think actually it was music between my, my siblings and I that was the, the bigger influence. I have an older half-sister. I remember her giving me a bunch of records pretty early on, burning them onto iTunes and, you know, just thinking it was the coolest thing to, to have this database of, um, of music that I could explore for myself and, and kind of, she was four years older and, and kind of feeling like it was something that could bring us closer to each other. And, uh, with my brother, once he got a little, he's four years younger. So once he got a little older, it was really special to be able to, to share some of those live experiences with, with him and to, to go together and to, um, yeah, to, to share in the appreciation for a show. So, and he's still, you know, one thing I really value about our relationship is he shows me new music all the time. And that's something that's, you know, that's really, I, I'm, I make a lot of playlists. So, you know, it's nice to be able to make those kind of like, express or capture feeling through through someone else's expression and so I think that has been a big part of my communication both with my family and in understanding myself is you know not necessarily doing so in your own words but music really does have a way of articulating a feeling um, and capturing emotion that sometimes you wouldn't be able to articulate for yourself. And um, for my brother and I, you know, we really enjoy showing each other new music. He plays um, 
I'm really proud of him. He, he has been very invested in, in finding opportunities for himself to play. So down in Miami, he plays, um, well, when things are open, he plays, (laughs) um, he plays bass at, uh, at a, like at a gospel church and he, he, um, will like, we'll do local gigs throughout the, like throughout Miami area for restaurants or cafes. But as he's gotten older, I've been really impressed by how he has gone after these opportunities and, and found them for himself. And I think that comes from just, uh, a love of, of expressing himself in that way. And, um, with bassists, I think you see a lot of the time their personality is sort of reflective in the instrument. So it's not, and I think that's very true with him that he's not necessarily the center of attention in the room, but you know, he has a, a steadiness that is sort of the heartbeat of our family. And that really comes through. And he says that his happiest moments are when he's playing. Um, and I think that's a sentiment I, I hear from a lot of artists is that, they can feel, truly feel like themselves when they're able to uh, to play or to to practice their craft, and it's um, it's not work or it's not a profession, but instead it's you know just kind of an extension of themselves. Sure, sure. So why California? For California to contextualize things in looking back at that period of time, I wouldn't say that I knew being in live music was going to be a career necessarily or producing wasn't necessarily going to be a career. I didn't really know that it, it was a, an option as a career path. So um, I had moved to California out of interest for a school. Um, I went to a college called Claremont McKenna college it's uh, it's just east of, east of Los Angeles in the LA area, uh, small liberal arts school, and that had been having gotten in there and um, and thinking about higher education had been what had brought me out to California, and I'm so grateful that that the situation with um, having been interested in that school aligned in in that way because. I really do think that being in California and being in proximity to Los Angeles helped to make it clear that this entertainment is an industry and it's a thriving one. And it really made it possible by being out here to, to explore that and to figure out where I may fall within that business. So you come from London, you come to small liberal arts school outside of Los Angeles. And what's the first notion? Like, how do you get sucked into producing events? It was pretty early. So it, I was there uh, as a freshman, 18. And one of my first thoughts was, I want to go to shows in LA. And <laughs> <laughs> and that's easier to do. That's accessible, you know, for where we were, there's, there's the Metrolink train right away, but pretty quickly that also it, it became clear the barriers to entry there. You're, you're driving, you're going to either Santa Ana or into Hollywood, you're paying for parking. 
And by um, a few months into the, to the school year, my thinking was, you know, we're so, we're so close to Los Angeles. Can we bring artists here? You know, and they don't necessarily have to be the biggest touring artists, but colleges are a great place for a developing act to find exposure and to tap into a demographic that, um, that would really understand their sound and, and help them um, in building that core fan base. So a few months into that first year at school, I started a, a club on the campus to book live events to, to be hosted at the college. Um, and that was, I was definitely, I didn't necessarily know what I was doing at all. I just knew that it would be great on someone else's budget to be able to bring the shows to the campus. And luckily um, <laughs> the college system, the college I, I went to was very supportive of clubs and, and student initiative. Um, and they had some faith. And so that really was the intro to, to the booking process and to, you know, understanding kind of the ins and outs of what it means to produce something uh, that's a live music experience, even on a, you know, a very small scale and that it was at, at, at the college and, and, private and that it was only for the students. It was a great intro to understanding the systems and the expectations, you know, having to advance these shows being the, you know, the point of contact, um, understanding, seeing the contracts come through, looking at deal mm-hmm. structures, you know, coming to understand where private bookings like that sit for artists definitely spending too much on talent and then and then learning through that process and and also getting to know people in the space there's still some agents that answered my email as a as a college student that I'm still in contact with and I really do remember those that had the patience to to break down what needed to be done um and I'm very grateful to those people for, you know, taking the time to see that I was a kid that was genuinely interested and wanted to do more of this kind of work. And it's, it's in context of the college experience, I feel like some of those initiatives taught me the most rather than necessarily the, the work in the classroom. And I think that that has been a common theme in the learning by doing and um, kind of jumping into these things or following my bliss and trusting in that to understand where to invest time and, and what to pursue. And so often that bliss has led to, to music experience. Well, I know this probably seems very organic to you and at the risk of sort of um, demystifying it or making it mundane, I'd have to ask, you know, it's a big leap to go from a fan in the audience to somebody who wants to go to more shows to actually having the idea and the chutzpah to say, well, I'll just bring the show to us. And so 
Um, let's just accept for a minute the exceptionalism there of, of doing that. Um, what, you know, you have this notion, what did you do? Who did you call? How did you know, how did you know how to connect with the music industry? Mm, I think, well, luckily the, the social networks were very much alive when I was in college. So I think I was spoiled in that respect in that you go onto Facebook, you look up the, the artist you're interested in, you go to their info and right there listed is the agency info or, or the name of their agent or, you know, some level of contact there. That was one thing that definitely in, in terms of initial reach out for booking made things a lot easier for me. I think another thing that really helped me was as I was working on these, these on-campus shows, I was also getting work experiences in LA and I was going into the city a few times a week throughout college for different internships or, you know, I, I really, I tried quite a few cause I, I was doing this work in, in the event production at school, but I still wasn't certain where in the industry I was going to land. So I, I did some, I did an internship at Warner Brothers Records involving sync licensing. I thought that might be um, a path to follow. My major was legal studies and literature in college. So I think I was thinking, you know, maybe the like the legal side could be of interest in, in that kind of work. I interned at a talent agency and really just did a lot of shadowing on the different desks. And that was pretty eye-opening to me to see these different agents, you know, rather than just my perspective as to, you know, I click send on the email to be able to see it being received and, you know, what that means on the other end and how that gets processed and the different roles within the agency world. Um, and I, I think that what really helped me was just kind of jumping into the experiences and being willing to reach out. I think that a lot of the time, you know, it's, it's this fear or anxiety around a rejection that, you know, you haven't even set yourself up for that can be debilitating. And I think what, you know, what is the risk in sending an email May, or, or picking up the phone? That's one thing I really like doing is, you know, jumping on, picking up the phone and seeing if you can connect with someone on the other end to, to speak about a project or to see, you know, if there is something there that could lead to an opportunity. Um, and I think that's one thing that really helped me in that transition from being in the audience to, to starting to do the, the production work was reaching out and working on not taking a rejection or a, an email that wasn't replied to personally, but looking at that as, as part of the process and being lucky enough to have had these these work experiences in music where I found people I could ask questions of. And I think that that also, 
you know, that gave me the confidence to start producing outside of the, the college itself. I started doing warehouse parties in LA and I started, you know, actually making some, a, a little bit of, of money from these productions. And that was really exciting to me was, you know, what, what happens when you try, you know, sometimes things work out and in less so about the money from the productions, it was that feeling of seeing, okay, all these people are having this experience because of a, you know, because I reached out or because I sent that, I sent that email or because, you know, I kind of got the ball moving on an idea and I, I let it live in outside my head and, you know, and now we're here in this moment. And I think that in motivating me to continue to reach out or, you know, to take that risk and at least asking the question, were those moments when I got to see other people enjoying or, or that knowledge of knowing that, you know, you put, you create this framework for experience and it is the audience that colors it in and um, they're all going to color it in a different way. But as the producer, the responsibility is to create the most reliable framework to anticipate what is going to make the experience the best that it can be and to trust in your artists and your audience and your team to then bring that to life. And, um, mm. and no one's experience is going to be the same, but um, it's worth it. It's always worth it when you know you've created these, these moments that have really unlimited potential for people and you know, can, can help people to connect with themselves and with each other in a way that you, you don't necessarily get in everyday life. Yeah. Well, that's a really wonderful articulation of sort of the role or, or the mandate of, of the event producer and the, and the visionary for an event. Um, I don't think I've quite heard it said that way, um, but that makes a lot of sense to me and it resonates. Um, so at, at what point in your sort of burgeoning career did it become clear to you that this was your life path and career path as opposed to something, you know, you were doing, I don't know how to say, you know, to entertain yourself or to create a, a fun experience for the people in your, in your scene and in your world. Was there a specific gig? Was there a specific moment? Did, did someone say to you, Hey, you're good at this? You know, what, what made it become your life path? I think it was taking myself seriously is what differentiated it from being, okay, this is fun. This is, you know, something I can do to instead be saying, this is something that can be the rest of my life. And it was while I was in college that um, I started my, my first business and um, which was a event production company and um and work to finish college early to, to be able to get our first festival off the ground. And so I think it was that recognition and that, you know, that joy for producing um, that made me take it seriously and made me take myself seriously and just, figure out, you know, what is the next iteration of this passion? 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it is an iterative process. You don't, you don't, like I was saying, you know, when I moved from London to California, I didn't have this big master plan. I didn't know that this is where things were going to land. But I, you know, it, it kind of goes back to following what feels right and, you know, what makes you feel most like yourself. And doing this kind of work is what feels most like, you know, who I'm kind of where my, my personality and purpose align. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has really been a big factor in, in pushing me towards doing more of it. And that, that move to, to make things official and create an entity to, to start this first business was a big step. I think that probably came from, I remember going into the bank after a show with like, <laughs> like, a, like a flower vase of like tips from our, from our bar. And I just remember it like <laughs> feeling like this is no longer acceptable to walk into the bank with, uh, with this loose cash, you know, how does this, how, how is it possible to make this a little bit more legitimate? Um, <laughs> I hope you still and, have that face. <laughs> uh, it's probably around here somewhere. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and that first entity was, you know, was the way to do so. And um, I think that's really, that was a turning point too in understanding that producing these events is so much more than just, you know, being a producer or organizer, you have to be a business owner and you have to yeah. be a risk manager and you have to be an accountant and the insurance and, you know, you're, your taxes and your liability and, you know, all of these contracts and the responsibility you have to your team and your contractors and your vendors and your talent, you know, that you feel that when you have a, a business that you're doing your work through. And um, again, my approach was to kind of just go and, um, and that's, really what that first festival was, was like the first run at it in an official way where, you know, tickets were on an official platform and we booked, um, it was a two day event um, up in Sacramento in uh, March of 2018. And I had been kind of in and out of Sacramento in the few months before that or, or excuse me, the, the year before that, definitely the few months before that, before the show. But um, the thinking was, you know, this is Sacramento is a market in California where it's a little easier to get the talent you want because you have less competition and it's a secondary market in that, you know, not everyone is focusing on this place but it's growing and um, the culture, some of like the music culture there orients around um, like a harder rock sound, yeah. metal, um, some like, you know, some, you have festivals that, that happen there that are um, kind of like more punk, hard rock. And my thinking was, you know, what is the, for, 
at, at that time I was still in college. A lot of people were listening to electronic music. A lot of people are still listening to electronic music. But what is that, like that electronic equivalent of that like hard rock sound? And the answer to that was dubstep. <laughs> and <laughs> dubstep is also a genre that is a little bit, you know, was a little bit less expensive to book and to, you know, take this first leap on. And it felt like it would be right to, to, to learn in a market that wasn't necessarily um, where I was based and, and to in, tailor our productions to this space rather than coming in with an idea as to what they need to, you know, observe what's already happening, you know, where do kids feel kind of underserved or where do the acts, where have acts just never come through um, for that sound. And so Sacramento was the place for that. And it was, um, it was a great place to learn. It was where that first, that first like, two-day show took place on a a fairgrounds up there. So that was interesting to to have to learn, you know, how to build a venue rather than just come into one. And I think that production process taught me a lot um, and brought me, you know, brought me professional relationships that um, I've been able to continue to, to draw on for other projects. What role, if any, does fear ever play in your ventures or as you, you know, it could be um, as, not as small, but it could be you know, in the context of I have to build a venue at a fairground in Sacramento. Oh, my goodness. To I'm going to become a full time producer to I'm going to take my company now and fold into this larger established organization. Like, do you is fear a motivator? Is fear something to be acknowledged, managed, minimized? How do, how do you think about that? That's a great question. Um, thank you for asking it. I think that in fear, I think that, I think the first step is to recognize it, um, but to not be a servant to it. And to, I think a lot of the times, the fear that exists is a fear of something that hasn't happened rather than right now we're in a period where, you know, the fear of the fear of, you know, the the live event business being paused has happened. So it, it kind of does contextualize all other fears that I've had prior in that, you know, you, you don't know what's going to happen. The unexpected can absolutely happen. But if you, at the end of the day, know that you've done your best and you've, you've put in what you can and, you know, you've really put in the effort, the intention to accomplish what you want to accomplish, then, you know, the greatest, the greatest fear is like not trying, I think. Um, or, you know, becoming stagnant or, or losing that desire to do something that I love. And I think that, you know, all the other fears or the what ifs are really, are, none of them, are, none of them are as great as my fear of having not tried. Yeah. Yeah. So it's less about trying and not 
hitting the mark or reaching the ideal and more about the, the not trying at all would be the tragedy or would be the, the real miss. Yes, it is. Yeah. Cause I, you can't iterate if you don't have something to, to base that process off of. And, you know, even if it's, even if it's a failure or even if it's a, eh, at least it gives you context for what you do next. You know, it's kind of like the lily pad for the next jump and the next and the next. And then, you know, you can learn both about what you're working on doing, your, your process, but also about yourself and your resilience by continuing to, to try or to give it your best shot. Um, yeah. And I try and keep that in mind and uh, really just hold on to the why and, you know, why this is important to me, what, it, what a great show can make me feel and the potential in all the good that a, a great show can make other people feel and, you know, all the good that that can do. Yeah. As your shows were getting bigger, and as, as you said earlier, your sort of business was becoming more formalized. Um, were, you, were you taking the financial risk? And was that financial risk growing as your business was growing? Uh, yes. So that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was absolutely a lesson in um, why I did not want to be an independent promoter for mm for the long term. Um, and that, you know, I felt that pretty early on. Um, and, and also the live event model has been kind of a, a crazy one in, in how financial risk is placed. And I, I really do anticipate a shift in that to happen as we, as we come back to live events. Um, I guess to contextualize it, a lot of, in the past, there has been a lot of risk that's put on the promoter. Um, and, you know, that's, that's guarantees and that's rentals and that's contracts. And I do anticipate that at least being diversified a little bit, especially as everyone goes through so much hardship right now, or at least shared in some respects. Um, in terms of guarantees at the very least, or, you know, your, your commitment, your financial commitment to your artists. Um, and so, and I became pretty aware with that risk and with the resources being limited that in order to produce something great, you know, there needed to be a greater partner involved to scale in Luckily that, you know, those, as those realizations and that awareness was growing, um, I had started doing shows at a venue in Sacramento that was Live Nation owned called the Ace of Spades. Um, and they actually, they'd never had a, a female promoter in their space before. And coincidentally, at that time, this initiative was announced through Live Nation called the Women Nation Fund. Um, and it was, and, and its purpose, it, it still exists. It's, uh, it's rolling and it's in application. But um, 
the purpose was to really recognize there, you know, there aren't that many women in the live event space and to act to empower and invest in, in women, um, in early stage businesses that are, are in, in live events. It had been my, my venue contacts at the Ace of Spades who had thought of me at that time when that announcement had gone out about the fund and had sent it along. And, and I, yeah, I decided, you know, try, put an application forward, you know, what at worst you don't get it. And I'm, I'm really glad I did because it was that application that opened the doors for, for greater communication with Live Nation, some relationship building, mentorship, and eventually led to me closing that, that first business and um, launching my current company, Kingdom of Mind, in tandem with Live Nation through having applied to that fund. It really, it really I think, also helped me to, again, take myself seriously and live in that and and recognize that if I hadn't taken myself seriously, who else would have? And I think that's really a, um, a lesson, especially to, you know, young women, women in entertainment is that um, it's important to, you know, see yourself as a professional and see yourself as, you know, deserving of opportunities when you're, when you're putting in the work and you're looking at yourself as a professional and behaving as such. Yeah. And in so much as you're able to or, or you're comfortable doing so, can you talk a little bit about not, not, not the financial nuts and bolts, but what is the deal relationship? Is it a joint venture? Like, did you have to shut your old company and start a new one that was a new legal entity? Like, that sort of question, that's part A, is just like, what's the, what's the mechanism? And part B is... What's it look like in practice in terms of, you mentioned the mentorship, you know, is there like an internal sponsor that you get paired with or how does the, um, how does this relationship with, with, with Live Nation manifest in real life? So that was, um, working that out was a big part of the process um, and took, and took about a year to do so in a way that made sense to me. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to start fresh. We ended up structuring things as a joint venture. It was important to me for both of us to be invested in the next steps and to have some skin in the game. And so that's, that's the overall structure in terms of mentorship. Um, I, the, the great thing about the fund was that, um, the people that had initially interviewed me were with me throughout the application process and the formalization. And so I remember being interviewed on, I think it was my 23rd birthday by their um, VP of touring, Leslie Olnick um, at Live Nation. And she is, now sits on the board for Kingdom of Mind. 
So she has continued to be a mentor throughout the process, continued to be, um, it's been really, it's, I feel very lucky to have been able to have moved from interviewing with her to working in an office with her to, you know, being able to turn to her. I think that the relationship is also what you make it. So um, I really tried to do a lot of work to get to know people in, in the company, both. Um, I normally, I would work out of the, the Beverly Hills office here. Um, and I remember in my, you know, my first days in, in going into the office, starting this tab on my phone where I tried to get the name and like the, you know, some note around everyone I met basically, you know, just to remember like, some detail as to what, you know, what the conversation we had or where they, they sit or what they do. And I, I think that that, you know, personal connection and that interest in, in building relationships um, really helped me in further getting to know the, the company and to get a better sense as to, you know, how, how else we could collaborate off paper, you know, who could, who could help on, who I could ask questions of, whether that was insurance or contract review or, you know, um, back of office services, whatever else, you know, who, who was there for me through my partner as, as my team. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting model. And so what was happening before mid-March. So we, I was really excited for this fall. Um, We were looking, I guess, similarly to the idea around Sacramento. The idea had been to launch in a Pacific Northwest market. And um, I'd been in and out of Portland and, um, the Live Nation had recently, at the beginning beginning of the year, opened an office there. Um, I've been building a really nice relationship and um, connection with their their team up there. We were um, is that Mary Claire? Yeah, 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 yeah she's, she's great. Mary Claire has absolutely been a mentor to me throughout this process, and uh, I would say one of my biggest supporters also she's a great one she's a great one she really is and um you know similarly in that year where we were figuring out our structure we were having conversations and she was even without knowing what things were going to look like she was a mentor and i will forever have respect and gratitude for to her for you know how much she has believed in me and uh and how that's helped me believe in myself too and uh, in what I want to do. So we were, yeah, we were, we were looking at that market and uh, offers were out for the launch and the, uh, the real kickoff out there. Um, everything had been done with the venue and we were set on our space for, for a larger production out there. Um, and then, yeah, and then things turned and uh, we've had to, you know, just 
we've had to wait until the time is right, until it is responsible to move forward with a live event that involves gathering. Yeah. With that said, do you, um, do you have events planned or is it more that you have the plan for the plan when the time is right? Like, how are you, how are you thinking about a return to, to action? Uh, right now has definitely been the power of the pivot has been in mind over these last months. And hmm. it's, I guess it's in that I, you know, I know that this is the work I want to do in the future. There is, like you said, a plan for the plan regarding Portland. But right now, um, been thinking a lot about producing in general and working on doing different kinds of projects that, you know, still involve some of those same transferable skills. Um, I'm working on an art installation right now at the Hollywood Palladium. And that has been a little bit different in that we are, instead of showcasing art inside the venue, we're working on showcasing it in the, uh, in the, for the public um, in the exterior windows there and involving wow. local artists for that. That's been a little bit different. And, you know, it's still, I would say at the core of what I do is um, experience building and, uh, these last months have been a lot about figuring out how do you build experiences that mean something that connect people that resonate without the, the physical proximity. So, um, you know, one answer to that has, I guess, has been this art project. Um, but I think a lot about, you know, evoking feeling and, and bringing connection and, I think that it's really hard to do that digitally. It's really, with music, you know, it's really hard to, a live stream is, is never going to be the same as, a, you know, that expression and reception between artist and audience because um, it is an exchange. And to have that level of exchange, you, you do need to have, you know, at least some sort of sight of each other. So... Um, right now has been a time of, I think, really reflecting on what is possible, working on that and, um, and working on staying in, you know, in, in contact with all those who are in a similar boat and really making sure that everyone that has been a part of my journey, I continue to be a part of theirs as well, especially as we, everyone faces challenging times in this industry. Yeah. Well, I know our, um, our time together is, um, is coming to an end. I, I did want to ask you two other questions. One is, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about the company name. That's my first question. Um, and my second is, um, if you could tell me a little bit about the podcast you launched. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of name, Kingdom of Mind, it's all you know based around the belief that we each have a core purpose and there's a kingdom that is inside each of us. And, you know, that might ne not necessarily be a career, but it could be, you know, just something you love or your art or being a family member. Um, and I do think that uh, music-based experiences bring us closer to what that is. Um, 
And the mission is really to, to unite people in those shared experiences and bring people closer to themselves um, pretty much one show at a time. So that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's why it's called Kingdom of Mind or Calm. And uh, the podcast I've been working on recently has been a build out of that concept and an opportunity to, to, speak to, to speak to that and to speak with other people who um, are in the entertainment and music industry sectors that um, are building their, you know, are building out their kingdoms. And, yeah. and um, I've been lucky to have some, some great conversations and to, to talk with other professionals in this space about why they do what they do and um, how they've been able to, um, to make what they love their careers. And so we really, on the podcast, dive into the journey and then um, the vision as to what they're building and um, what it means to them. That's terrific. Well, we'll make sure that um, we point people to that in the episode notes um, when this goes live. Um, so thanks for explaining what that's all about. And um, thank you for spending some time with me this afternoon. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk with you. Thank you, Lawrence. Please uh, stay well. You too. You too. Take care of yourself. I appreciate your time. It was really a pleasure to be on the other side of this and um, <laughs> to explore these, this journey with you. Thank you so much, Isabella Kelly and Kingdom of Mind. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts from. While you're listening, please also leave a review and a rating. It really helps. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch. <laughs>